Greetings to the Paleo Protestant Podcast. It's been a while since uh, the three of us, that would be <clears throat> Corey Moss, Miles Smith, and myself, DG Hart, have assembled to talk about confessional Protestantism. It's been a summer of travel. And uh, before we get to our topic today, which is going to be uh, Christian nationalism, but also with uh, the, the slant of the confessionalist side of this, um, we want to just update listeners that we weren't, well, we were goofing off. We were away. We weren't necessarily <laughs> working, but um, try to make this a little bit warm and fuzzy as well. Let people know what the three of us were up to. I'll go first. Uh, very busy summer uh, with a 10-day trip to England uh, for a 40th wedding anniversary with my wife, which was really great, except when we had to get a COVID test to get back into the United States before the U.S. lifted that requirement. And it was fine. We finally found it, but it took a while to find it. And it was 50 pounds a pop Yikes. to get that, that test, which I just was talking to a friend in, in Belfast um, earlier this, this morning, and he said that it used to be um, 100 pounds, that test used to cost that. And he, he says that right up the road from him in, in Ballymena, um, there's a company that makes these tests and they, they cost about, they cost pennies on the dollar. It's what they cost. So <laughs> someone's making money off this. Anyway, then uh, I was at General Assembly. We did have a podcast after that. We talked some about um, assemblies this summer. And then my wife and I just got back from about eight weeks at our cottage north of Boston, near Cape Ann, the, the so-called Quiet Cape, not to be confused with Cape Cod, which is in the south where the pilgrims uh, originally arrived and settled. Um, and as much as I have reservations about Puritanism and Ivy League elitism, I've really fallen for <clears throat> Eastern Massachusetts. Um, it's, a, it's a remarkable area. So that was a lot of fun. But um, Dr. Moss, you've been traveling as well. I have been traveling. Uh, we we kick off the summer with a three-week road trip, uh, starting here in Michigan and heading west through Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, Nebraska, making our way to Colorado, uh, where we camped uh, up in the Rockies in two inches of snow and 34-degree weather. Um, traipsed about a bit there. Uh, That's Fahrenheit to, for anyone listening in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> uh, went down to Mesa Verde and saw the cliff dwellings there. Uh, spent a couple of days at the Grand Canyon. Oh, wow. Did a, did a family reunion with uh, my wife's side of the family in Las Vegas and did a little side trip over to Hoover Dam to, to see just how bad the, the lack of water in the Colorado Basin uh, mm. was at the time. I understand mm. it's even worse now. Mm. Um, and then finally made it as far as, as Orange County, California, uh, my old stomping ground, saw friends there, and then came back, just kind of looped north a little bit through Utah, um, saw some of the, the, the natural features there, and uh, then pretty much raced home. Mm. But that was, uh, that was our big travels. Uh, we did another, another few days up in northern Michigan with, with my side of the family. But um, yeah, exhausting, but, but extremely enjoyable. Vehicles cooperated? Vehicle cooperated uh, yeah, beyond our wildest dreams. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Smith. No, I, I, um, I had a eventful, uneventful summer. I didn't go anywhere crazy. I did go home uh, for a good month, which was longest I'd been in North Carolina in a long time. Um, and I just had a completely delightful time. Um, I, uh, I think, I think one of the, just the best things I did are uh, our former colleague, John Somerville, um, who's, uh, whose family and whose, whose roots are in North Carolina. And I got together in a barbecue in my hometown and then went mm. around and drove around looking at 18th century Presbyterian churches uh, in the, the western part of my home county, Rowan County, North Carolina. And so we just had a great time. It was one, it was kind of really <laughs> idyllic. We just walked, you know, got walked around, talked about history and literature, and we had had good barbecue. Um, 
which is you know a very North Carolina thing to do. So it was it was <laughs> a lot of fun. I I um, my my family is in Charlotte um, now, so I was with them. Daryl, you'll be happy to know I worked with Presbyterians for a few weeks, um, uh, and uh, so uh, I uh, I had a had a great time. Um, Any praise bands? No praise bands. No praise bands. Uh, this is, these are, uh, you, you would, you would, you would be in uh, simpatico with these, with these Presbyterians. They, um, <laughs> they are just frozen enough to still be the chosen. Um, uh, so, uh, it's a great group of people there at, at Sovereign Grace Pres in Charlotte. Um, and, uh, went out on the lake a few times went on the boat. Um, but, uh, the big thing that happened to him is my transmission exploded. So I had to get a new, uh, I, I didn't Sorry. want to get a new truck. Uh, um, so I, I, I replaced my transmission. So that was the final act of my summer. And so now I'm back here with, with you guys and ready to, ready to go. So. Uh, for those of us who still are sort of um, the, the world of barbecue is a mystery. What makes uh, North Carolina barbecue tick? The so-called special sauce. Yeah. So where I'm from, so there's kind of a line. Um, uh, there's there's kind of three parts of North Carolina. The uh, the western part of the state over near Tennessee, um, those traders, bastards do tomato-based barbecue because uh, they don't have a good sense to uh, to use real barbecue sauce. On the eastern part of the state, you'll find uh, mustard-based huh. barbecue. But where I'm from, kind of the west-central part, there's a region – centered around Lexington, North Carolina, um, which is, um, for people who don't know North Carolina, it's, it's about 20 miles south of Winston-Salem, about 50 miles north of um, Charlotte. And that area is called Lexington-style barbecue. I'm from about uh, 20 minutes away from Lexington. So it's chopped, it's not pulled. So you pull it and then you chop it up again. Um, and then you uh, use a vinegar-based uh, barbecue so it's got vinegar it's got black pepper big huh. red pepper flakes so it's a very unique um taste and you eat it with typically red red slaw and hush puppies huh. uh, so that's what makes barbecue barbecue where i'm from um so you can you can find that tomato based rubbish uh, up in the mountains <laughs> you can you can get the mustard mustard based uh uh in the eastern part of the state out near the the uh the banks but um yeah where i'm from it's it's vinegar based and it's very good it's actually a completely unique taste if you've never had it um and you're in west central north carolina um go 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 text me okay. email me and i can i can put you on some good spots so the transition here then to confessionalism could very well be barbecue because <clears throat> john shelton reed mm. is a socio was a sociologist at North Carolina. I believe he's now retired. He is a um, he wrote about the Episcopal Church or the Anglican Church in the 19th century, at least, as I recall. I have his book somewhere on my shelves, and he's also written a book about barbecue, if I recall. Huh. Um, do you know where he comes down? I mean. As well, a North Carolina, yeah, as a, he uh, he knows all of them. Um, I think over there near Chapel Hill, they're going to get a little bit more mustard based more regularly. But his book on barbecue is actually fantastic. If you've if you've never if you've never actually read about sort of the 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 react like what barbecue is, where it comes from, John Shelton Reed's book is is very good. It's also very beautiful. It's got nice pictures in it huh. and whatnot. So um, our uh, our colleague Jason um, Peters actually, I think. Uh, reviewed it at Front Porch Republic. Now that I think about huh. it, so. I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, so John Shelton Reed, Episcopal Church, Anglicans, um, and you know, barbecue is kind of an American phenomenon. So I guess there we have a little bit of national um, endeavor <clears throat> in the mix, which leads us to Christian nationalism. Uh, we talked about <laughs> this topic at the end of our last recording. Um, and there was a um, piece that Jake Meador wrote at um, Mere Orthodoxy, and I will link to these in the so-called show notes. Um, but he, he wrote a piece called The Three Ages of Christian American Exceptionalism, 
And then uh, this summer, uh, about a month ago, a piece came out in Christ- um, at CNN called An Imposter Christianity is Threatening American Democracy by the reporter or some kind of um, writer, John Blake. Uh, he writes here in this CNN piece, the insurrection marked the first time many Americans, this is January 6th, Many Americans realize that the U.S. is facing a burgeoning white Christian nationalist movement. This movement uses Christian language to cloak sexism and hostility to black people and non-white immigrants in its quest to create a white Christian America. Um, Jake Mutor writes somewhat similarly, um, not as hysterically, but he does say, Uh, At one point, because Christian nationalism is grounded in ideas about property, race, and the self that are irreconcilable with Christian faith, Christianity was modified, accommodated, and compromised in order to fit with the the ideology while not challenging the ideology. So Christian teachings on sex and gender were mostly fine because they fit the ideology, except when they didn't. And those cases were mostly resolved through appeals to racist lines of thought. Um, So you can see that he's very much thinking about race in his understanding of Christian American exceptionalism and Christian nationalism. And he writes toward the end of this piece, which is 12 pages in printout. Um, There are two ideologies Again, this is Meodor writing, two ideologies warring with one another in America today. The former is Christian nationalism, and the latter is the successor ideology. Neither is reconcilable with Christianity. The former is inextricably bound up with anti-Christian beliefs about race, property, and the self. The latter is inextricably bound up with anti-Christian beliefs about sexuality, gender, family, and the self. Um, <clears throat> So we don't necessarily have to, at least we can talk about that, but what I wanted us to reflect on as confessional Protestants is um, this idea of Christian nationalism haunts, I believe, our respective traditions because Anglicans, Presbyterians, and Lutherans are all part of the Magisterial Reformation which means that these churches and communions have relied upon the magistrate for some support in some way. And that has led to national churches Uh, in the case of Presbyterians, church of Scotland Uh, in the case of Anglicans. Well, can you believe it? The church of England. And then in the case of Lutherans, um, depending on what territory you're in. um, And then even in, in Scandinavian countries, um, you can get state churches there. So what, what's striking to me about the current discussion of Christian nationalism among scholars, um, scholars, not just journalists or pundits, is this idea that Christian nationalism is new and therefore scary because it's so new. Where did this come from? And yet, if you, you know, this is what historians do. So maybe we get uh, a little bit more uh, standing in, in this regard than others, but it's it's like people, Christian nationalism of some kind has been around for a long, long time. Um, and the current expressions of it, however crude they may be, are picking up on a lot of associations that people have had in the West for a long, long time. But anyway, so the question really before us in some ways is the degree to which Christian nationalism is in some ways um, a betrayal of Christianity. Um, Is it, uh, does it make nationalism better if it's Christian? Um, There are a number of ways to go, but my own case as well, the uh, Presbyterian doctrine of the spirituality of the church, which in some ways overlaps with the Lutheran doctrine of two kingdoms. um, You know, there's an effort to keep, politics out of the church. And in some ways, people also follow that up with keeping religion out of politics, even though Presbyterians and Lutherans certainly coexisted with um, national churches 
didn't necessarily decry them, because if you decry them too much, you might wind up sounding like an Anabaptist. Um, so anyway, those are some of the issues that we could talk about. And which one of you wants to comment first? I think Corey should go first. since I, th I think Miles should go first. Since he's the <laughs> one that's been cranking out article after article on Christian exactly. nationalism. That is true. Summer. He's, he's the resident expert, and we'll wow. and we'll we'll link to some of those in the in the show notes as well. So, so I'll, I'll I'll go first simply because I'm being nice to Corey, um, <laughs> even though uh, he's he's a Lutheran and a German. Um, so I think that this question gets really confused in our American context, right? Like I think the experience of living and worshiping and being American Christians makes this conversation. Um, different. And in a lot of ways, I think we've exported our language in the last 50 years to the rest of the world on this. Um, so I, I think that I, I don't like the term Christian nationalism because I don't know what people mean when they say it. Um, a lot of the expressions are almost always uh, alluding to some sort of policy um, thing in the moment. So, you know, you'll see Christian nationalism associated with the, the January 6th um, stuff or Christian nationalism associated with immigration or, or something like that. Um, I, I'm an Anglican. So, I mean, the, my, my communion exists because a bunch of people in early modern England, believed they needed to Christianize England in a particular way, Protestantize it, right? Um, so the Church of England and the Church of Ireland exist because of what I think you, you could call Christian nationalism, right? They're out to create some sort of Protestant nation that wasn't there in 1516. Um, and so you could call that Christian nationalism, but I don't think that's, that's identifiably what gets marketed out or what gets marketed today as Christian nationalism. I mean, Luther, I think, wants to Protestantize the German states. Um, uh, Calvin wants to Protestantize France. And so I think that I'm unwilling to call it heresy. I, I, I saw this... Um, you know, I think, I think it was Russ Moore or one of these guys at Christianity Today so it sort of said, well, it's heretical. Well, okay, maybe what you're talking about is heretical, but I don't want to backload that language onto the Reformation and say that John Calvin's a heretic because he wants France to become Protestant. I don't want to call Thomas Cranmer a heretic because he wants the, English, the prayer book to, to Protestantize England. I don't want to call Luther a heretic because he wants... German peasants to be Protestants. Um, and so I'm kind of allergic to the language today for that reason. I think one of the things that I, I have, I'm holding this, our listeners can't hear, but I'm holding my uh, 1662 Book of Common Prayer, uh, international edition um, from uh, InterVarsity Press. And one of the prayers in there, these, this is an international prayer book. This isn't meant to be used for the United States. So in, in there, in the additional prayer section, you have um, for a day of national commemoration, for a day of a national martyr, um, you have a, a prayer um, for uh, the, the, the welfare of a country. And so what you really realize is that the Anglican understanding is, is that Christian nationalism is probably something that every Christian society does. Uh, it's something that everybody's going to do. Nigerians should pray for their nation, uh, you know, uh, India should pray for its, uh, for its national health. New Zealand should, Australia should. So the problem is, as we, I think in a very Amerocentric fashion, have basically taken this entire conversation, made it about ourselves, and just completely confused the terms. Uh, the term that was sort of, um, I think in currency when I was in grad school was Christo-Americanism. Mm. And I actually like that term a lot. Um, you'll see that that's in, in most of the, the sort of the, mainstream historical literature from 10 years ago, you have this language of Christo-Americanism, because I think that's actually, when people say Christian nationalism, they're talking about sort of creating um, 
sort of an ideology that wants to create the idea that Christ has specially chosen America. So I like that term Christo-Americanism because I do think that's wonky. I do think that's probably not biblical, right? Like America is not God's people. Um, the, the, the church is God's people. Um, but if you're saying Christian nationalism and you're using um, this kind of narrow definition of it, I'm not sure how that's helpful in any context other than a bunch of evangelicals and right-wing evangelicals pointing guns at each other and just shooting over the Trump years. I, I think it's just, it's a completely, um, it's a completely chronologically worthless term. If all you're doing is just litigating it about the Trump years. Um, so I could go on and on and on. I've written too much already on it. So that's, I'll stop because the Lutherans need to speak. The Anglicans. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just piggyback on that. And a couple of things, especially, um, the idea that the term is just not helpful, and, and it's especially not helpful uh, if, if someone like, I, th I think John Blake did this in his CNN piece, refers to it as, as heretical or potentially heretical, um, for the very simple fact that, you know, never mind confessional Protestantism in the 16th century, you know, the idea that the magistrate has a duty to sort of oversee, guard, protect, maintain the religion of the people is, is pretty much the belief of the entire Christian church, East and West, forever, you know, until the Anabaptists come along. Um, so, I mean, this, this isn't simply a kind of a departure from a kind of narrow view of American Christianity. Um, it's It's... It's uh, or, or it, it is a departure from a narrow view of American Christianity, but it's not a departure at all from you know the, the broader Christian tradition. Um, th there are a couple of other things I, I think that are interesting about the terminology. One of them is um, the, the term nationalism, which you know in the the twentieth and twenty first century has just become kind of become kind of a bogeyman for sort of right wing conservative. Um, and kind of lost in the conversation, uh, especially lamentably in the academic literature, is any awareness that you know, in the 19th century, nationalism was you know, a good thing because the nationalists were the liberals. Um, so I, I think some work needs to be done in this literature on Christian nationalism to explain what, what exactly is nationalism before we talk about Christian nationalism, and then what exactly is perceived to be problematic about nationalism vis-a-vis -vis, you know, alternatives. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think probably this, the same sort of work uh, needs to be done on the term Christian and Christian nationalism. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, at least in this sense, I mean, we, we, we saw this, uh, I mean, we saw it especially in the, the the primaries uh, running up to the 2016 election. And there was just this massive journalistic uh, coverage of you know, the evangelical Christian Trump block. Um, but there were two sets of polls that floated around. You know, one is those who in some sense identify as evangelicals uh, and the other polls were those who were actually in church on any given Sunday. Um, so I, th I haven't seen anyone actually do the legwork um, you know, to talk about how many of these so-called Christian nationalists are, are Christian in any sort of sort of traditional historical institutional sense. They're actually members of a church. They actually attend, uh, you know, a certain number of times in a given month. Um, and then finally, some something something Miles said. I, I can't remember what it was, but I mean, it reminded me. I and I think maybe we've talked about this before. The the phenomenon of national flags in church sanctuaries. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, this, this is kind of interesting because, Miles, I mean, you're absolutely right that you know, Lutheranism, like Anglicanism, Presbyterianism, had certain kind of nationalist tendencies um, and was certainly comfortable with, with granting a broad degree of authority, at least in externals, to, to the magistrate. Um, and we do say prayers every Sunday for our, you know, temporal leaders. Um, but we've traditionally been a little 
skeptical of placing the American flag in the sanctuary. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I don't know how common, how uncommon that is, but, but, but it is a kind of interesting, uh, I don't know, you know, mark against any sort of knee-jerk conservative Christians are Christian nationalists in, in this modern sense that it's being used. Um, you know, if, if you've got churches that are historically shy about uh, kind of advertising national allegiance in the context of the, the church in the sanctuary itself, uh, that, that might complicate the story a little bit. Well, the, I mean, the Lutherans have a particular <clears throat> stake in that question about the flag, because as I understand it, with World War I, when there was incredible pressure on churches to show their patriotism and put flags and bunting up in the churches, which happened extraordinarily, Lutheran, German Lutherans may have felt that even more since the United States was fighting a war against the Kaiser, uh, at least. And, yeah. and so yep. a number of ethnic Protestant groups and probably also Roman Catholic parishes put up symbols of national um, pride in their churches to show allegiance. Um, and, you know, it, it makes sense that Lutherans might be wary of their own history of having done some of that too. I don't, I don't know how widespread that might've been in the LCMS compared to some of the other synods, but. Um, no, I, I think that's exactly right. And it, and it tracks with the, you know, virtually overnight shift from German language to the English language hmm. in the schools and congregations um, in, in, with the first world war and the second world war. Um, I mean, not, not without resistance. I mean, there, there were, lawsuits when states at attempted churches and, and schools especially uh, to, to coercively switch to English only. Um, but, but yeah, most of them did. And I think you're absolutely right that it was, it was an attempt at sort of assimilation. Mm -hmm. But th this is where, I mean, work I've been doing recently <clears throat> on, um, Presbyterians, a broader topic is Presbyterians and British politics, but writing a chapter, trying to bring this big, too big of a book to conclusion, a chapter on nationalism, Presbyterians and nationalism in the 19th century in England, Scotland, Ireland, United States, and Canada, um, and becoming aware of books like um, uh, Linda Colley's book, Britain's Forging the Nation, 1707 to 1837. Great book. It is. Yeah. Which, I, I mean, book. people, and I'll mention another book later in the recording, um, people writing about American Christian nationalism don't really take the British experience into account. And I, and, I mean, this, again, may have some uh, pushback for ethnic Protestants like the Lutherans who don't necessarily fit into this British Protestant identity the way all these denominations that come out of Britain, like Methodists, Baptists, Quakers, uh, Congregationalists, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, etc., have a kind of fraternity in part because they all do come out of the Church of England at some, at some point in some time. And in the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, Protestantism sort of defined what it meant to be British. Um, and even though Americans fight a war of independence, there's still a, a lot of allegiance to things that are British, a lot of cultural connections between North America and England. And, <clears throat> and, and where this can go is even, uh, I, I was using somebody that falls outside of Collie's book, uh, Anthony Frude, or Frude, however you say his name, who wrote a 12-volume history of England between the death of Wolsey and the, um, and the end of, and the death of Queen Elizabeth I. 12 volumes <laughs> on that. <laughs> but toward the end of that, he makes this amazing uh, sort of wide-ranging connections 
about the place of Protestantism in British Nash British identity. And that couldn't be national identity because it's it's a it's an empire and it's also transcending various kingdoms. Um, but and, and it fits though with what Kali's saying about the importance of say Pilgrim's Progress. Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress or, or Fox's Book of Martyrs, which were staples in households in the Anglophone world. And those are written not by Church of England folk. I mean, those are dissenters, uh, maybe sectarians, but they're still part of this Protestant mix. And America fits into this. And Froude is making this point about, <laughs> and I'd really be curious Corey, especially for you to read this at some point, but he makes a big deal of the defeat of the Armada in 1588. Mm -hmm. And this basically saves Protestantism in Europe and around the world. Um, And, you know, you can certain see us kind of a geo strategic geopolitical um, plausibility to some of this, the way that the wars were being fought um, the 30 years wars and beyond. Um, so it, it, Protestantism is, one way of putting this is Protestantism is just built into the cultural matrix of the United States, Canada, uh, and certainly the United States is losing that just as Britain lost it more in the 19th century than, than today for the United States. But it, w- it would seem to be useful for scholars to be able to, one, be aware of this and two, point it out and not get hysterical about it while while it's happening while also trying to keep your head your wits about you as you think about donald trump which i know is a really hard thing to do for for people and i don't want to make myself sound superior because i have been able to keep my wits about trump but i do feel like some historical perspective has been useful in thinking about him or his supporters or january 6th which a lot of people who see those things just immediately attach a kind of significance to it that is evil, wicked, and but then associate it, just immediately go to this one wing of American Protestantism, white Christian nationalists or white evangelicals, and they wind up function, becoming the scapegoat for all of America's sins. Uh, and what do you do with scapegoats? Don't you send them outside the camp? Yeah. I mean- when are we going to start putting these people into exile? Um, and this, something you just said reminded me of, a, of a, the other point that I wanted to make about the terminology. And I, and I mentioned this to, to Miles um, a couple nights ago. It's, it's how quickly the label shifted from mm-hmm. Christian nationalism to white Christian nationalism. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 I, I'm not sure the reason for that. I, I've got two suspicions. One of them is maybe a couple of people figured out early on that you know, Christian nationalism is a really ambiguous term and, and it's not doing the work that we want it to do because it, it could be confused with sort of traditional magisterial Protestantism or, you know, every state, I mean, Blake mentions this in his CNN piece, you know, every state constitution at the time of the American founding had a reference to God in it. So there's, there's kind of an awareness that Christian nationalism variously defined isn't a, a new or necessarily scary thing. And so they're, they're trying to narrow it down a little bit by referring to it, to it as, as white Christian nationalism. And, well, and part that, of the, uh, that's word association. Yeah. That's not, it's not descriptive anymore. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. Well, but it, it also comes up in the Blake piece because it is a way of saying there's a good kind of Christian nationalism, which is Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement. I don't know if you were going to, you were going there, Corey, and I don't mean to interrupt that, but it is curious to me that people can identify a good kind of Christian nationalism and distinguish it from a bad kind. And it really does break down along the lines of race, but also the policies that are being pursued. But if you ever listen to the King I have a dream speech. I mean, it's littered with the American founding yep. and the Old Testament prophets and Jesus and whomever. And it's, it's thoroughly Christian and nationalist. Right. So which, 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 which leads to, to the suspicion that the, the charge of racism, I mean, the, the term white is really doing all of the work here. Hmm. 
Um, and, and the problem with Christian nationalism isn't that it's Christian, isn't that it's nationalist. It's it's that it's you know ostensibly or allegedly you know racist uh, in essence, in intent, in in policy proposals. Um, which I mean, again, m- maybe that's true of some narrow sliver of. 21st century, what we're calling Christian nationalism. Um, But it's not terribly helpful for thinking about the broader project of, you know, figuring out how exactly religion and uh, a polity intertwine and inform one another. Yeah, I I think that one of the things, especially the race aspect of this, um, if there is whatever these folks want to describe as Christian nationalism, it seems to be really, really wedded to some sort of charismatic Christianity. Um, And yet the group of people who are affiliating more and more with charismatic Christianity are like Hispanics. I think of like, think of South Texas. Um, You know, my grandmother's from, from Southwest Texas originally. And so you look at like the, the, the kind of electoral politics of that region don't bear out like whatever, if there is a sort of Trumpist Christian nationalism, the group of people who are flocking towards it, at least in Texas are the last people who are supposed to be part of the coalition. I think this, this is one of the reasons why I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure it's real in the way that it's being described. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And another one of these sort of throwaway lines in the Blake piece that I just found interesting and, and problematic is right at the end. So he, he kind of makes that connection between Christian nationalism and support for Trump. And he just, as a throwaway line says, you know, Trump's support among white evangelicals increased from 2016 to 2020, which it did. But you know where else Trump's support increased between 2016 and 2020? Among black men, right. among black women, among Hispanic men among Hispanic women. I mean, every demographic, except I think white women, support for Trump actually went up between 2016 and 2020, right. which, I mean, I'm, I'll be the first to admit, I don't exactly understand that. But, but, but yeah, to, to paint support for Trump as somehow you know, inherently racist, never mind inherently Christian or nationalist, um, is, is, is really problematic if you're just going to appeal to levels of support increasing or decreasing. Yeah, I, it just, I mean, the whole thing seems to be really just an exercise in kind of sociological partisanship, if I can use that, that term. I mean, I mean, what's changed? I think that um, Sam Hasselby has said a couple of useful things um, and he's, he's no friend to Trump or, or anything like that, but uh, just, you know, the, the, the election results for quote unquote evangelicals haven't really changed, right? They voted for Trump at about the same rate they voted for Bush at about the same rate they voted for Dole about the same rate they voted for, for Bush one. Yeah. And so it, I think that it's almost, um, this is really sociological for a certain group of people who might once have identified as, as evangelicals, um, and who now don't see that identity as useful, especially in academic pursuits. And so what do you do? Well, you've got to find a way to sort of justify that you were a part of this thing at one point, and now you're the expert on it. Now you can say, oh, I know, I know how it's all bad. Believe me, I was in it. Like, I can tell you what's going on. And so it just, I mean, to me, it just seems all, you know, kind of heavily pegged to basically just sort of sociological, Mm. you know, um, outworking. And so like, I mean, the Randall Balmer book, the, and stuff like that. I mean, you know, all of these guys grew up like EV free or CMA or, or something like that. And, and, and it's kind of like, isn't, isn't that like at some point, I don't know, it just seems like so self-referential as to not be kind of scholarship anymore. Which is why though, it makes it peculiar <clears throat> This is how pervasive it is that people like Philip Gorski, <clears throat> who wrote a book with Sam Perry about Christian nationalism. Gorski is a sociologist at Yale. Um, <clears throat> and then um, David Hollinger has a new book out on Christian nationalism that 
I'm reviewing and, and both of these guys, well, I don't think they come out of evangelical backgrounds at all. And yet they've latched onto this interpretation, which, which it's, it just strikes me as being a very thin interpretation. Um, and again, makes me wonder what is the, what is to be gained by jumping on? It really has become a bandwagon. People are writing the same book over and over again. (laughs) I mean, and publishers obviously are publishing these and they, they want the books for some reason, but it's, it's a curious thing, but let me take the opportunity to, to go to this week's or this episode's sponsor. I forgot about our sponsor. Yeah, I did too last time. And, and some, some listeners have actually sent me some good ads, but I didn't, pack them with me coming to school. So I'm going to go with a standard one, moinkbox.com. That's M-O-I-N-K box.com. Moink offers ethical meat boxes delivered to your doorstep. Our customizable boxes include options for wild-caught salmon, grass-fed and grass-finished beef, pasture-raised pork, (laughs) grass-fed and grass-finished lamb, and pasture-raised chicken. Owned and operated by farmers, we are proud of the work we do and inspired by the people we feed. Moink offers exceptional taste, exceptional quality. Our meat is antibiotic-free. We do not use growth hormones. We do not feed GMO grains. Our products are not altered. Doctor, the color. There are no solutions added to our chicken. There is no sugar in our bacon or breakfast sausage. There are no nitrates or nitrates or nitrates in our products. So if you are interested, go to moinkbox.com. That's M-O-I-N-K box.com to box prices. And when you get to the checkout, use the code Lexington barbecue, one word, Lexington barbecue. Okay. Okay. Enough for that frivolity with that frivolity. (laughs) Um, I mean, Corey, to pick up on something you were saying about the importance or need of need of definitions for nationalism. Um, in reflecting on the history of well, Christianity in the United States, and you and I have talked about this some, the way you teach your European Christianity. How do you do so many different nations in that in the in the modern period of European Christianity? when people who teach religion in the US like I do only have to worry about the United States and never ever consider Canada or Mexico. <laughs> I mean, what would they have to do with Christianity in North America? And it is the case that nation states do matter. I mean, you can go from, I mean, not to say that the Roman empire was a nation state, but I am more and more convinced that without Constantine and Nicaea, Christianity doesn't achieve the kind of orthodox coherence that it, that it does. I mean, so it takes a magistrate to get that. How, how would Christians have done that without a Christian emperor? I'm not really sure. And, and Nicaea has remained this touchstone for orthodoxy for <clears throat> almost all Christian communions. But then you go all the way down to something as seemingly insignificant as the OPC's Presbytery of Michigan and Ontario, where in conducting the business of this presbytery, we have to respect the laws of both the United States and Canada. And during COVID, that meant that people from Canada could not get to the United States. And that still seems to be a difficulty, a challenge, which is why our presbytery meetings allow for attendance by Zoom so that people from Canada can get there. So nation states do wind up defining, giving order and coherence to parts of the world within their territories. And it seems that sometimes the people who are criticizing, ridiculing Christian nationalism, they're both ridiculing Christianity and nationalism. And I can certainly I have certain reservations about the size of the American government and the federal government, what it does, but it still is 
a kind of blessing that we have nations that give a measure of peace and stability in the world, um, despite all the bad stuff that they can do and do do. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's another aspect of Christian nationalism that I think people forget, which is that na- nations really do have made a difference to the history of Christianity. Um, not just the way we, we tell the history of it, but even the way we practice it. I am. Um, Daryl, you mentioned Mexico. Um, I, I uh, when I was growing up, we went to uh, mission trips to Merida, Mexico, which is in Yucatan state. And the largest reform seminary in um, Latin America <laughs> is in Merida, Mexico, San Paulo seminary. Um, and so we worshiped at a Presbyterian church there downtown um, Merida, which is magnificent building, um, huh. by the way. Uh, it's, you know, this art deco building from the thirties, but one of the things they do is during worship, they uh, salute the Mexican flag and sing the national anthem. Um, and it's really jarring because huh. if you know anything about Mexico and most of Latin America, they do the Roman salute, um, which is of course your hand held across your body. Like, like the, the listeners can't huh. see me, but it, it, it's the Roman salute. Um, and so you have, and of course, the other way they do it is to hold their hand out straight, <laughs> which is, which was extremely jarring for a 16 year old kid um, <laughs> from North Carolina that had grown up in a Presbyterian church that didn't have flags in it. We certainly never sang the national anthem. Um, and we certainly would have never done a salute that looked, you know, I, 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 it looked Nazi. Right. Um, but they, they're not, they weren't even thinking about it. It's just that that's not even a conversation that was had uh, among the, 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 the large conservative Presbyterian denomination there in Mexico. Um, and there's, there's more Presbyterians in Mexico than there are in the United States. That's another interesting thing to think about. So I think that the Americanization of this conversation, um, I think has so much to do. I don't want to say we ignore the American context, um, but we tend to sort of, we, we're so bad about exporting our assumptions on the rest of the world. Like what we assume about the rest of worldwide Christianity, um, I just don't think always jives with the, with the experience. Mm-hmm. So um, like we freak out about sort of um, the religious conflation of religion and the state and however tasteful or distasteful it might be. I don't know if everyone else, especially um, outside of Western Europe and the United States, I just don't know if they think about that as particularly <laughs> important. Um, I think there's an assumption that, well, of course, it's just kind of how life is and we've got bigger fish to fry, like, you know, not getting murdered for the faith. And so, you know, why are we going to worry if the pastor says, pray for the president, the king or whatever? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the case of Mexico is, I mean, it's interesting because it's a good example of the difficulty of sort of separating these things. Um, I mean, Our Lady of Guadalupe is just kind of a a Mexican symbol. I mean, right. it's obviously a Catholic symbol, but it's also very much a Mexican symbol. Um, and I don't, I, I, I've gotten no sense from the journalistic accounts and I haven't, I haven't read carefully uh, any of the longer academic accounts uh, that have come out recently, but, but, I, but I, have, I have no sense that anyone who's criticizing Christian nationalism finds that phenomena in Mexico problematic. Mm-hmm. Or since there, there, there's this kind of concern about anti-immigration sentiment among so-called Christian nationalists, I, I don't see any concern raised about you know, immigration from Mexico that might bring in this kind of quote-unquote Christian right. nationalism. Um, I did, though, um, I, mean, I want to I, I highlight something, Miles, in, in one of your pieces, I can't remember if it was for mere orthodoxy or the American conservative, um, but, but you highlight, I, I think, a really important point. And, and this, I think, does get to what's new about the kind of Christian nationalism on the radar right now and what distinguishes it from what might be called the Christian nationalism of you know, Catholic France or Anglican uh, England or, or Lutheran Germany, um, namely that it's in America, it's this 
sort of evangelical phenomenon, uh, kind of non-denominational and, and baptistic, and that that sort of Baptist American evangelical tradition is the, the one tradition that just does not have a history of state church mm. um, or, or, or any sympathy for something like a state church. Um, so, I mean, if it, if it hasn't come through, I mean, I, I should just go come right out and say it. I mean, I'm not particularly sympathetic. I'm not at all sympathetic to most of what uh, the, the media is criticizing as this sort of contemporary version of Christian nationalism. Um, not because I'm opposed to Christian nationalism per se. I just think that this particular breed of it is new and, and they're, they're doing it badly. Right. And, and perhaps they're doing it badly just because they don't have any sort of institutional tradition of it from which to, to draw. Um, it's like kids who found a gun. That's what it feels like. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's but it's also, be, I think it's also because they don't have any spokespeople mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. are capable of putting it, in, maybe not in plausible ways, but in measure, a measure of coherence. I mean, you can get a tweet from, and this is part of the problem too, people who can espouse it, they can do it on online on social media and they don't have to write develop an argument. Um, so you get maybe Eric Metaxas, you know, with his radio show, a guest that will have on, or you get uh, Franklin Graham tweeting something. Um, and some of the people that were so-called religious advisors to Trump might do things on social media. But I mean, you know, Corey, it's come up before with us, Francis Schaefer, mm-hmm. uh, and, and you, you kind of had a, a little um, time with with him in your in your headspace, as it were. Um, yeah. And we haven't really developed that, but I mean, you know, Schaefer was someone who was doing it, who was doing it somewhat coherently. I also think he did it in retrospect pretty badly, but at least at the time there was a book to go with the movie, and right. people <laughs> could read this stuff. <laughs> and, you know, then Tim LaHaye comes along and does like another version of it or something yeah. in another book, but there are no books that you can necessarily attach to it. Unlike the, the mound of books that keep piling up that are writing about this phenomenon that has no books in, in effect. It's, it's a really remarkable development and back in Schaefer's day you could have the books piling up by some of the moral majority types I mean even Jerry Falwell's um, book listen uh, exclamation point America uh, was would be a book and you 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 get at best a book review about it nobody was writing books to counter this um, so it's a really odd yeah. cultural moment well and this, moment. this I mean this is another thing. Sorry, I keep just pushing it back to Miles, but but again, in one of these pieces that you wrote over the summer, um, I think you made this kind of nice distinction, which again highlights the, the sort of novelty of this current movement and this current moment, is that the, the, the magisterial reformation and and the, the Eastern and Western churches even before that, um, the the quote unquote Christian nationalism of those movements. Was, was in some real sense a kind of elitist movement. Right. I mean, it, it was theologians, it was lawyers, it was statesmen who were kind of articulating the principles, developing the policies and promoting them. Um, but this new phenomenon is, is very much, uh, I forget the, the phrase, uh, a folk religion, I think is the phrase. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's very populist. Um, it's not at all uh, elitist or intellectual. I mean, not, 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 of course, that being elitist or intellectual is, you know, a, a wonderful thing without problems. But, but yeah, they're, they're just very different things. I, mean, I think that's what you're getting at. There's just, I mean, nobody's written a book defending Christian nationalism of the contemporary sort in, in a robust way and, and trying to define it in ways that might uh, avoid or answer some of the criticism being lobbed at it by the mound of books on the other side of the aisle. Well, I think the, the, the problematic assumption, I, I agree with you, Corey. I, I, like, I, I mean, you know, I'm not going to anathematize the, the 
the guy like Cramer or anything. And I'm not going to say that, but my, my problem with what passes for Christian nationalism nowadays is it's being done on merely sort of sociological terms. Right. And so that's, that's, it's detractors are doing that, but also the people who are really into it are doing that. I mean, think about the type of folks who are into it. It's a lot of fringe Calvinists, a lot of fringe Lutherans, not so many Anglicans, um, but you can find them. They're out there for sure. And it's only being done because of what you can call policy, social policy failure by conservatives to stem the tide of, you know, what the sexual revolution, whatever you want to call it that. And I'm not, this is an endorsement of the sexual revolution, but it's just to say, you, if you can't make up a tradition, like there's people out there describing themselves as magisterial Baptist. Like, what the hell does that even mean? <laughs> it's like, I, I have no idea what that is. It's just made up, right? And so, and so, and what ha- what's happened is there's this kind of sociologically evangelical tradition that is only like 25 years old that they're appealing to as, as, as sort of a, a way of sort of back, almost uh, back engineering uh, a religious world that never existed in order to defend new pushes to enact socially conservative policy. It would be better. It's just like, you don't have to Bible everything. Like quit, 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 quit trying to Bible this. Like, why don't you just say, this is what we're, we're instead of trying to create some sort of ahistorical, amorphous, you know, Babdotyrian magisterial Calvinist tradition, it just never existed. Oh. Um, and so to me, it's, there's not enough sociological responsibility among the champions of this stuff to sort of take it seriously. And we're not going back. Like, guess what? There will never be a state church or any sort of establishment in any of our lifetimes. And if you think that I've got a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you. Um, Unless, I mean, unless there were some kind of secession, which I think would be. Sure. Yeah. Hard to imagine. But I mean, if you could somehow, you know, get an Island somewhere, Conceivably, yeah. but that's about what it would take. Um, I, I think the but, problem with that is is airports and power grids and interstates, right? right. Um, you know. Well, so. and speaking of of the sociology, I mean, one of one of the terms that we haven't used, uh, at least in this hour, um, is is the sociological term civil religion. And, right. And I think this right. is partly what you're getting at, Miles. That this that this new version is problematic. Because it, it seems, at least to me, and it sounds like it seems to you, that, that, that the goals are really political, sociological, and religion is just a tool to get us where we want to go. Right. And so, I mean, in any, I think any confessional Christian, whatever his uh, sort of beliefs about the relationship between church and state is, ought to find it very problematic if, if Christianity is sort of simply being appealed to or primarily being appealed to, not because it's true, not because it's redeeming, but because, hey, this might be helpful in passing this law. Right. This or, might be helpful in electing this president. Or in approximating some sort of idealized sociological place. I mean, you know, you have all these people, you know, the big push moved to red states. and. Right. And, you know, move this, well, you're not a culture warrior anymore. You're a culture immigrant. You lost. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, like, you know, I, I'm from North Carolina and you see this happening a lot. Um, and of course, I, I'm a, it's a little galling to me because it's just another form of, of sort of suburbanization and gentrification that's going on. Um, but you're not, you're not, you're not doing, you're just trying to live a play world. Right. And, and so I, th- I think that that's why I'm unconvinced about the um, and, you know, it's a certain sort of very earnest person that's always trying to do this, too. So, well, but to your point, too, about and I'll just make this the last word before we go to recommendations, because we've gone for an hour, which is uh, a record for us. But, um, Cora, you invoked the phrase civil religion or the category, and it does mm-hmm. seem that there's a human tendency, but also an American Christian tendency that when you want to say something is good, you attach religious endorsement 
to it somehow. So that makes it really good. So if America is good and then you can make it a Christian thing in some way, that makes it really good. There's just, it's a way of, I mean, you see this in presidential speeches at times of war or whatnot, yeah. that God, we're on God's side or God is on our side or something. I mean, you just kind of raise the rhetoric up and it's, it's, it, I do think it's a natural human tendency to do this, to Im- import supernatural sacred significance to something that is ordinary. And I mean, that's part of what the appeal of Christian nationalism may very well be to ordinary folk who find it appealing. Yeah. Um, But on the, before we conclude, uh, I was going to ask for some recommended, recommended readings. I'll go first and mention this book that I was using for this recent chapter I've been writing. It's edited by Tony Clayton and Ian McBride, and it's Protestantism and National Identity, Britain and Ireland, 1650 to 1850. And if I would argue if more people who are writing books about Christian nationalism just spend a a little time with just a couple of chapters in this book, they'd have much more historical perspective than they currently seem to have. But that I'll put that in the, the notes of the write-up for this episode. Um, any other recommendations for our listeners? Well, on the, on the Lutheran side of things, I hesitate to recommend it because it's obscenely expensive. But I, I think, to, to my mind, the definitive volume on this in the Lutheran world, the early modern Lutheran world, is uh, James Estes, Um, It's called Peace, Order, and the Glory of God, and the long subtitle is Secular Authority and the Church in the Thought of Luther and Melanchthon, 1518 to 1559. And it's, yeah, it's comprehensive. It's, it's, I think, well-sourced, well-argued. Again, use use interlibrary loan unless you want to drop $170 on a book that you're probably not going to read more than once. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the kind of go-to survey and analysis for the Lutheran world. Yeah. I I think the best book I've read on this as a historian is, is, is Sam Sam Hazelby's book. Um, and the exact title, Derek, do you remember the exact title of it? The origins of, um, um, the origins of american religious nationalism yeah the origins of american uh, religious nationalism it's just an excellent book it is um and it's it's i think it's great because sam really gets at the fact that okay none of this is new this is kind of baked into american life and and it's not an endorsement of it i think i think no it's not uh, saying this he's he's a relatively progressive guy and um you know uh, but i think he's he's kind of just one of the few people who's got a very honest look at, okay, this is, this is part and parcel of American life. It will always be with us. It's not an endorsement of it, but it's just saying, okay, this is, this is how, this is how Americans kind of interact. This is how these ideas kind of mix in the United States. Um, and I so I think by reading that, you kind of get a better idea um, of what the history of it is. And that sort of allows you, I think, to approach the, the conversations contemporary conversations with a little bit less of a manic attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, this is, this is just part of American um, intellectual, social, and political life. What, what's really striking about that, if I may add, is that, um, and Miles and, and uh, I both follow Sam on Twitter, <clears throat> um, who's really, really good. And he's been on a roll lately, but, but Sam's covering the 19th century and he breaks the Protestant world down between the elites, the Congregationalists and Presbyterians versus the Baptists and Methodists. And it's the, it's the elites who are doing Christian nationalism and it's the folk as it were, who are resisting, which it, again, puts a, a different kind of spin on the, on the moment in which we, we exist. So it's, it's very useful for thinking about the way Christian nationalism uh, rolled out. So, With that, uh, we'll bring this long episode to a conclusion, and we will hope to do something less political the next time. (laughs) Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks to Ari and and Miles for being with us. Thank you. All um, all right. Take care. All right.